Of course, we're still friends. We are great friends. And John is another of the people that I'm going to run. Punchline week. It's like Shark Week. Only punchier. Uh, John worked for Punchline. I was the graphic designer. We got to laid it all out for you to see. Put it all together. Ripped it off from the stranger. He'll admit that. He says so. Imitation is the highest form of flattery, right? Yes. Everybody knows that. Um, hey, you guys, real quick, WRIR this weekend, um, Commonwealth of Notions raising money for them and uh, somebody else. You can look it up. WRIR. They're having like a uh, bunch of events at a bunch of different clubs. Ones I know of are like Strange Matter and Banditos and Balasso. Um, oh, I haven't been to Strange Matter since I moved back here from Minnesota. I'm not going there in the summer either because it's hot. But, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And nobody's paying me to say any of this, so that's okay. <clears throat> I have been to Ballester. That's very nice. Nice place. Been there for two things. One of those things I will also plug, because I'm really trying to get Kathleen Brady on here, the uh, secretly y'all thing that goes on there, I guess, once a month. I, I went to one recently. They come up with a theme. People come and tell stories. Uh second half of the show people pull stories out of a hat um i had a great time there last time i went very entertaining kathleen brady is one of the organizers of that she's also a yoga instructor and i want to talk yoga i love yoga i do yoga um i am not convinced anymore that yoga is uh really attached to any hallowed and time-honored spiritual tradition I mean, it is kind of vaguely attached to it, but what we do, us honkies in America do, that we call yoga, it's about 100 years old. Put together by Iyengar, who's like an Indian Jack LaLanne. But uh, that doesn't change the fact that I like, you know, the, doing it. I do I do the poses and the, and the stretching and get warmed up and try to meditate. And I just kind of think anything you do mindfully and intentionally makes for good meditation and helps with the brains and helps with the behavior how you uh, get along with other people and how you get along in life uh, what stories that you allow to sweep you up like Tornado and the Wizard of Oz and which ones you can stand back from and say that's bullshit because it is all bullshit actually it's all an illusion it's all a dream life is but a dream and you have a choice, you can make a nightmare out of it or one of those ones with a happy ending. You know what I'm saying? Happy ending. Get it. Um, so I'm, I, uh, I I got some more people lined up in the punchline thing and I'm really glad that's kind of presented itself because I have so many people I want to talk to and I was out with people last night 
that were like, oh, you should talk to this person, you should talk to that person. And I'm like, yeah, I should talk to all of those people. And where do I begin? So, um, like with the rest of this, I'm following my nose. Um, when, what just happens tonight? Actually, I have Mr. Jayon Falsini. He's rolling into town on a mission to pick up something for something that he's doing up in Charlottesville, where he is the uh, he has a business, Magnus Music. He uh, promotes bands, uh, books bands and clubs. I think he's starting to rent his own space, and so he was coming down here to get a, a sewing machine, an industrial sewing machine. So he could do curtains in his new space. I think that's the story. But he's going to be rolling in here at midnight. I'm going to have the stuff set up, and we're just going to we're going to roll right into an interview in the witching hour. And uh, my man Jayon is a wild child as it is, and um, and he and I have always uh, like had some very manic conversations. So we're going to try to make that manic conversation a tantric conversation. And see what happens. But Jayon Jayon was just like he was like the legs kicking the fucking raft in punchline. I mean he really, really put a lot of ass into it. And he's a good writer and he was just that guy I mean like major like the cruise director of Richmond, you know, like let's all, you know, find out what's going on and do it. And really his enthusiasm uh, really bled through the pages and um, he took it on up to Charlottesville. When it all went down, went up in the mountains, got above it all. So um, here comes John Goldberg. It's like an iceberg, only gold. Got some ground rules? Uh, we're already recording. <laughs> don't say anything you don't want. No, can you stop? Okay. So we're uh, John Goldberg here. Uh, I'm in his living room. Uh, to say hello, John. Hey. So, John, um, you having some work done in your backyard today? You're a homeowner now, and it's a big project going on back there. Yeah. It's How's uh, that going? Has it started to get resolved yet? It's been a it's a real eye opener as far as spending many years um, envying people that owned houses and thinking that was the trajectory I needed to be in. Um, and maybe even needed to leave New York City to do it, and now I'm, and now I'm really in it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a very different process than, you know, let's say working in an office and having schedules and project managers and um, people that are actually, even if they are incompetent at it, in positions to organize things. Um, and I, that is not the case, let's say, with a team of landscapers. And it's, yeah, it seems that a lot of people experience that who go from working uh, in office spaces uh, and wanting to transfer that level of organization and accountability to their home uh, project management and <laughs> finding that that doesn't happen. So this idea, you know, you and I have been friends a long time, but you have developed from a person who would be the last person that I would expect to be leading a project. Not the last person, but not somebody... <laughs> Who really wouldn't interested in that sort of thing? I mean, I first met you in the '90s when uh, you and Chris were living in a house in Oregon Hill, and uh, neither one of you were in school or really directed in that regard. Uh, there was a lot of casual art going on. Uh, there was a general interest and in contribution to the 
creative scene of Richmond that kind of uh, radiated or orbited around VCU. Um, but, you, you know, you weren't specifically um, focused on turning your creative creativity, your drawing and stuff that you were engaged in into a career. Yeah, I mean, I had absolutely no idea how I could do that. I mean, I had no idea really of, of many things, but, you know, I, there was some vague thing, and I, I don't even know if Shepard Fairey had even come out at that point um, with... Maybe some very rudimentary Andre the Giant has a posse stuff. I don't even know if it had happened yet at, at that point in the 90s or 91, but the idea that maybe if I could go to Kinko's and print some of these sort of weird graffiti-style drawings of guns or women with guns or swords or kind of graffiti-looking kids with guns and guns or just a picture <laughs> of a gun and then <laughs> put that on a sticker. And then if I put enough of those stickers around Richmond, that somehow that could lead to kind of maybe some sort of artistic fame mm -hmm. that might lead. And then, you know, even in remembering it as I'm saying it, like the idea that that would lead to any kind of money just doesn't seem to play a part. It was, it was just that, maybe I would be n notoriable. So you mentioned Shepard Ferry, and I think I think his the Andre the Giant has a posse. Was definitely those stickers are around. Pretty sure at that point, but because uh, that's him, right? You just gave me a quizzical look, like. But yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm not entirely sure. We're talking about like 1991, and then even but even the concept that. If they were around, the concept hadn't started that him putting them across the country would lead to what it led to with mm -hmm. him. It was just that it was that it was a thing. It was an uh, just another aesthetic that was speaking to the kind of kind of person I was and the kind of people you know. In the same way that a Mark Gonzalez skateboard was one of the first things that I looked at and really said to myself, like, there's something about the way this thing looks that just feels like they're talking been, to me. You might not have been able to put it in to these words at that point, but it was the idea of a consistent design, a calling card, a thing that people recognize and associated with you, not the idea that necessarily that you're creating a different work of art all the time that is... Um, has a, a life of its own, but that there is a, con a continuity and a consistency and a relationship between the, the stuff you're drawing and something that people are going to recognize and know is your, is like your tag, your calling card. Yeah. I mean, Chris and I had created those in high school together, Chris Milk and, um, mine was, you know, I, I just referenced Mark Gonzalez, but my tag was Gons, yeah, the, uh, my dog is chewing a bone down there. Baker. It might be picking it up, but I don't think it is too bad. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's covered in dog, dogness. <laughs> and so I was tagging, I not that much, but tagging stuff with the name Gons. And Chris had, Chris w was milk at the time in high school, and that was something that we came up with uh, maybe even freshman year um, at Richmond Community High School. Um, and so I, I'd moved away from Gons, but had um, 
you know, started using a string of letters, Ligme with L-I-G-M-E, which I, I had gotten Letraset stuff at Kinko's and put that on some stickers and, um, had been doing that. And Chris was kind of in the same place. He was, we were still just guys that drew and, you know, pretty well and had always been those kind of kids that, you know, the, the other kids would say, Oh, John's a guy that draws and Chris is a guy that draws. And strangely enough, a lot of our other friends also in, in this kind of group of skater kids, um, Will Britton was a drawer and, uh, John Harrison was a drawer, you know, even back to when we were at Cary, we were drawing stuff and we made books out of, we, we had a, a gun catalog cause I had a thing for drawing guns way up into, uh, into the 90s even just where does that come from because you're not a particularly violent guy (laughs) (laughs) well that's actually one of those things it wasn't until i was in i had gone out to san francisco in like 94 just out of after a breakup and just you know one of those times one of those many times where i just needed to get out of richmond and ended up out in san francisco and i was kind of at this point sort of desperate to try to figure out a way to hawk my drawing into something where someone might pay me. And bands was a a way that I was thinking about doing it. And I was still drawing these people with guns. It was just sort of this trope. Where'd you start drawing the people with guns? I think it's just, well, you know, just being an American boy, um, I had a thing for cowboys and firemen. And then at some point it was guns and the sort of technology and the, the coolness of that, and jet fighter planes and all kinds of... So it's war- probably more the way that the uh, engineering went together to make this functional thing that had this look to it. Because you got into the details of, like, the you know, the whole gun. Like I did a little bit, but not as much as maybe you're implying. It was really much more an, an aesthetic ideal. This mm-hmm. you know, And even with, like, graphic novel stuff, where the idea of the anti-hero but still there's a heroic aspect to it and you know i think it was literally in san francisco where i kind of realized like this is really ridiculous and childish and it has nothing to do with my life like my life in san francisco was kind of spiraling out of control Mm -hmm. and there was lots of drama yet i was still drawing guns and swords and shit like Mm -hmm. that that really had nothing to do with what was going on with me. And I started to try to, I started, I attempted to try to focus some of the angst and turmoil into, in writing and drawing of what was happening with me. And kind of, I left the, the guns behind in San Francisco. But my original question was, I mean, so you don't, you don't really remember where you got into that, but it was just a trajectory of youth that fell away and then but it does seem to me remembering how you used to draw those things that you were really um focused on i think the way the proportions of guns and the way that they went together and the way that they looked in contrast to something like a woman you know that guns are these whole uh, rectangles and cylinders and they're heavy and they're metal and they've got these uh surfaces that are kind of rough and then there's a uh, no, it, I mean, I knew how to execute that, but and you this were more is thinking about Tank Girl. This is where it gets ridiculous, and I'm really, I, in some ways, I feel lucky that I I realized it at some point because there's grown 
way, way grown dudes still perpetuating this. Mm -hmm. It was really nothing beyond the idea of walking slowly away from an explosion. It Mm -hmm. was just that woman is sexy and she's Mm -hmm. got this gun and she doesn't take no guff off of these guys. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, (laughs) that's what you were consciously thinking about there, but I don't think that that would have captivated your aesthetic sensibilities for as long as it did. If that's all it was, I think there was a degree of it. Well, you were trying to be consistent because you were the guy that drew these things for a long time. But this is where it really gets, where everything really gets hard is when it's the reason I, among other reasons, I never became a comic book artist is because you have to have a plot. Mm-hmm. You have to have an idea. And this is the same thing for, um, making a short film, making a long film. You have to have an idea that's compelling. Mm-hmm. And I, it, what it was was a shortcut to emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, violence is a great shortcut to, you know, it's one of those things that actors tend to, d- <laughs> <laughs> I've got some dog squeaking going on. Um, I think younger, less experienced actors tend to do a thing where they want something where they cry mm-hmm. and they want to really act. And what they're not recognizing is, is that, um, you know, one of the, one of the hardest things to do is to be, to underplay and to, to To react. Uh And, um, and I was really just doing this thing that, you know, created this drama that wasn't a real part of my life in any way. And it was just a kind of like a crack cocaine for having, trying to have something that made it interesting Mm -hmm. and um it was a shortcut that uh i needed to get rid of and there was nothing you can't think of anything that was inspiring there because i remember there were like you know there were like tank girl and there were stuff like that where there's this demure girl with a giant gun and and the other thing is like okay that's consciously what you remember thinking about that but there's always a subconscious element to why you know what what is coming out of an artist and i remember chris one time did this panel by panel send up of a comic you drew which involved <laughs> all of these. It was a, like I remember a space scene, like a guy flying a spaceship, and there was a, you know, a, you know, and you had framed it all out, you know, like storyboards almost uh, of the action of this. And well, I mean, that's exactly what that crap I was drawing needed. And Chris has always actually been a lot better at that than I have been with his art. Is you know, even when he was a drawer, an illustrator, doing, you know, Chris used to draw fill pages with penises just mm-hmm. really detailed penises mm-hmm. but like and you're drawing guns which many would argue are the same thing yeah exactly <laughs> but chris chris was always better at if when he wanted to he could put a story together mm-hmm. on a page and that story would be about making something really funny that had happened and you know or it could be about a lot of things but he could do it and i was really just like five panels of brooding and then a guy shooting a gun, you know, and, and just really didn't have the discipline or didn't really, and that's one of the things that I think college would have helped me. Arguably the word help could be argued, but I think if I had spent more time in school, I would have been exposed to people that would say to me, here are your choices as far as a career or, or what you could do with the talents that you have. Like you could become, I can train you to be an illustrator and then you will receive assignments and money for that. 
um, or you can be a narrative comic artist. Or I just didn't have those things because I didn't really. I, well, part of it is it. I mean, you're. I mean, here you're talking about it now. I mean, there's is when you're only other peers that are doing that is your best friend and somebody that you're vaguely in uh, a competition with. You know, which most people are with their best friend. You see the way he tells a story, and you're like, I don't tell stories like that, so therefore I don't tell stories. You know, and I I remember your comic books as having, you know, they were definitely derivative in a stylized kind of storytelling, but they still, you were still accomplishing that. You know, I remember seeing stuff that you did that on, but I think that maybe you're, what you're saying is that had you gone to school, you would have learned how much that is almost where most people are when they're telling stories and have to develop that. Like they start off like, you know, telling things in the way that they've seen other people tell them, and then they develop their own style. And but instead, you put your efforts into um, maximizing the design side of it and and the consistency side of it and the more the logo the um, so how did that go because I don't remember the timeline you were here in Richmond up until like the early sometime in the early 90s yeah in um, in 94 I went I took a drive away car um, I'm not sure they exist anymore, but and prior to '94, I just want to. You pretty much didn't. You held minimal jobs like dishwashing. Well, starting like in that. starting in high school, I started working um, in restaurants, and so I was, which carried through all the way, you know, into the '90s. That you know, I started at Stuffy's out on Libby, mm-hmm. and. Um, I worked at a movable feast and I worked at bot- I worked at a bunch of restaurants mm-hmm. and drew stuff at night and and wasn't really doing much else and and um you know in 94 drove out to where my mom was living in Portland and hung out there a little bit and for a few months and just got really you know she lived about an hour and a half outside of Portland in uh, McMinnsville, Oregon, on a farm. And it was, you know, it was beautiful, but just really, really, you know, for a, a early, then? D- like, 20... Not enough stimulation. Yeah, I mean, not 22, 23-ish or something like that, and just not enough going on. And I knew that um, friends of mine were down in San Francisco, so I took a uh, took the... The Green Tortoise is a sort of hippie punk rock bus that runs that it's kind route. Of like the Dragon Express going between New York and here goes up and down the California coast. I guess so. I mean, I'm I'm not sure. I know the Dragon Express, but it was all it was all like punk rock and hippie kids mm-hmm. on this bus, and it stops at like these hot springs, and um, it's it's its own experience. Um, so I went to San Francisco and hung out there for maybe four months and just really hit this wall of um, not just not prepared for moving in general in the sense of like Richmond can be a real cocoon both in your super close friendships, but it was especially then so inexpensive to live here mm-hmm. that, you know, I could be a roommate with a close friend and be paying under a hundred dollars or maybe a little more than a hundred dollars. And then if I got short, I could be working within a couple of days and just make that up. And mm-hmm. San Francisco <laughs> did not and does not operate like that. And, yeah. and New York didn't either, um, doesn't either. And, uh, I hit that wall just like walked right into a, a sheet of glass. I didn't see coming and, 
and behaved kind of immaturely and then felt really bad about it and had another set of ridiculous ideas that I would get to Alaska and get on a fishing boat in Alaska where I had read and been told that you would be basically sequestered on this vessel working very hard and at the end of a certain period of time you would walk off with like 30 grand or something right. that mm-hmm. was the that there was were people that did that like sue me and stuff back then right it was like the blueberry picking like yeah know, right? it was like extreme blueberry picking yeah. and <laughs> and so i kind of i booked out of san francisco where i had just burned a lot of bridges and just acted badly and the intent was to get to alaska and i got back to portland and then uh took a i think a bus from uh no actually i I met someone and i got a ride up to seattle and with the distinct intention of um finding that boat and then didn't quite realize so you didn't even know really where one got one of those boats you just thought i'll get near a port and somebody will know no it wasn't even that intelligent (laughs) (laughs) i actually as many undereducated east coasters might do is when you see a map often alaska is in an inset Uh uh-huh yes and so it's kind of it goes from washington state and then there's alaska right and so I kind of didn't realize that there was a whole other country between Alaska like and a, Canada. Yeah. And, and so I was, <laughs> I would be in these like coffee shops, you know, looking at, you know, a map I had gotten from a gas station going like, Oh my God, how am I going to, how, I mean, is there a bus that goes from here to there? Literally asking those questions and, uh, just money and time caught up with me and I had to start paying my way i was sleeping on someone's couch at the time and i took a job at a restaurant and um it it suddenly i was living in seattle Mm -hmm. and the with that the the vessel thing kind of slipping away as i started to get a paycheck and started to meet people and and what was your job at that point i was a probably dishwasher line Mm -hmm. cook um busser at um, a little place in Capitol Hill in Seattle. And uh, during that, started trying to do something with all these drawings of Mm -hmm. people with guns and stuff. And I started getting some callbacks. The Rocket, which used to be, I think, a monthly magazine that was, it was kind of like spin, but in a, a, on newsprint without the circulation. And it was a Seattle sort of mainstay kind of West Coast um, rock indie magazine. They had called me in after seeing my work and uh, wanted me to develop a comic. Uh, they And this is what they said to me. They And I was so excited. I was dishwashing, and they called me in to potentially draw for money. And they said, we'd like you to do this comic for our classified section, and we'd like you to draw futuristic vampires who are in a rock band and create a story, mm-hmm. a an ongoing <laughs> story <laughs> about uh, vampires in the future in Seattle in a rock band. And it was like, if you could have seen my face, I just, I was so, you know, cause I was still at this point where I, you know, and maybe I've never left that point in some ways where I thought this was it. This yeah. was going to be, 
the thing. This would be like, I would suddenly, I would be doing covers. I would like, it was going to work out Mm -hmm. and just so deflated. And I was just kind of like, I don't, I don't have, I don't know how to write that story, much less draw it. Yeah. Um, and so I came out of that and I had answer, you know, at this point I was answering classified ads in the stranger, which was, is, uh, Seattle's weekly paper. And you, mean, you were seeing ads in there, and you were responding to them for yes. Okay, and one one of those ads was an ad for a woman who wanted someone to draw a specific picture f- of her band for the cover of their demo. And I answered it, and I sort of I had stuff to show, and she really liked my drawings, and um, I drew a picture of her and her bandmates in this kind of heart logo thing and um she asked me if i could design the actual cassette tape it was a cassette that was being released and i kind of bluffed my way into to yes i i know how to do that with the computer and i really didn't actually know how to do it and and at this point how it was not that easy to do stuff on computers or it took a long time i mean were there scanners (laughs) yeah i mean it was i had she actually worked in an office, um, and so she said, you can come in. We've got a computer, a Mac, that can do the stuff you need. And so I came in there, you know, while I wasn't working and, and you know, asked for some privacy so I could <laughs> figure this thing out. And uh, I figured it out, you know, and um, it turned out the company that she worked for was um, a phone dating line a 900 service called um the nightline phone personals and she was organ she was running a subsidiary of that which was america's psychic source and um there was also a a soap opera character who is his name and the psychic love line um, so a psychic line specifically for love questions and based on a superhero, I mean a soap opera star, soap opera, this guy Drake superhero form. and, and so sh- during this process, this woman said, why don't you work here doing these ads, doing the ads that are in the back of the Rolling Stone? These, they would be eighth page or 16th page ads. It would mm-hmm. be. And they might actually even still be running, um, but it would be a set of eyes floating in blackness and then a lot of phone numbers and a lot of sort of like, you know, just say America's Psychic Source and the Professional the professional Psychic Love Line mm-hmm. was the other name. I just remembered it. And then it would have like 10 phone numbers and then, you know, the final um, call to action, you know, find what find true love blah 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 or whatever and that became my job my first graphic design job um where i learned how to be a graphic designer and this is the very very rudimentary era of photoshop were you using yeah it was like it was photoshop um i'm not i this was at the time when they when layers came out, which mm-hmm. is a, a geek, a design geek, anybody who listening that is a design geek will say, "Oh my God!" There was a time when there wasn't layers in Photoshop. And layers are where you can you can have different images at different 
sort of you can add and subtract images like you're using a cell like an animation or something yeah exactly and so i was i was in this office when they released the version of photoshop that had layers and that was like the big the big Mm -hmm. thing so yeah it was it was and you know we would get it was still print you know so it was everything was going into magazines and had to be printed out and um and so that was my that was the transition did from you have the thought then that this was it like you had about the vampire comic or was this just like graduate this is just this thing you were just learning a little bit more and it was your job and you well know. i guess another thing and you know i don't know if i want to get stuck on this but like i really had gone to seattle to try to get to Alaska to try to make money to pay people back that I had borrowed money from and had sort of, I felt like I had harmed and, and I had in some ways our relationships for sure. And so suddenly I'm in a job that's paying me $20 an hour. And I mean, I was destitute at that point. I was still sleeping on couches and, um, I still remember you, li- you slept in the office there. I slept while. in the office. I slept mm-hmm. in parks. I, I was in. I was in a bad way. I was a really kind of. I I would not be a big fan of me at that point in time. But I, you know, I was whatever. I was twenty, twenty, whatever it was. Maybe and twenty five, twenty six. Possibly, possibly, and people you know get married and are mm-hmm. breeding way before that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was I was a late bloomer, and uh, so yeah, the twenty dollars an hour to, that was really what I was focused on. And suddenly, I was making almost impressive money. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I had ever made close to that, and so it was more about wow, I need to keep this. And I actually spent most of my time terrified I would be fired. Mm-hmm. Just you know. Um, that someone would figure out that I really didn't know and that it would take me a really long time to do a very small ad <laughs> with mm-hmm. not a lot of complexity or whatever it was. And I was just socking away this money to try to pay people back and try to get on my feet and get an apartment, among other things. And um, and then and then I started to be able to do those things. I did start to pay people back. I got an apartment, but... I was in Seattle and Seattle had done had passed a law where you couldn't put band posters on the telephone poles like if you go around in the fan and there mm-hmm. still those poles covered in right uh staples and stuff um and as a you know as a concession for that law they had created this organization that would Take if you submitted your poster to them, they would put it up in a series of bodegas and windows that people that small storefronts or bars or whatever had agreed that yes, I would like you to bring posters to my establishment. Mm-hmm. And so, this like these guys would actually walk around Seattle with these piles of posters, all different posters, and they would every week put up a new set. And one of the, one of the things that did it is it caused a real surge in um, competition of graphic designers trying to one up each other mm-hmm. with like there was, you know, Kozik was already an, a silkscreen guy doing like Melvin's posters. Mm-hmm. 
But in Seattle, there was all these guys. Um, and Kozik was in the Bay Area. He was in San Francisco, and so there was and there was this thing happening in Seattle. There, are guys like Art Chantry were doing posters, and I would I would go into these bodegas and see this stuff as I bought a pack of cigarettes and go like. What these people are doing is very different from what I'm mm-hmm. doing with the mm-hmm. same tools. Mm-hmm. And that part of that pride in me wanted it. I felt like I could do that and I wanted to do that stuff. And so that was when I started to realize, okay, now I've got a different set of tools. I'm, I'm doing graphic design and. You know, again, I guess I was, you know, sort of being motivated by this desire to have notoriety. Like the, the Art Chantry was a designer that had earned a lot of notoriety for how striking his posters mm-hmm. were. And I just became really fixed on that idea that, and, and spent many years in Seattle copying him almost, you know, just completely plagiarizing almost trying to figure out what he was doing trying to so you got to take what was your original desire and enjoyment of of drawing and combine it with this almost completely accidental new scale skill of digital uh design and and initially the two were not related in any way except that somebody had hired you to draw something but now you saw that you could this didn't have to just be a way to make money that you could satisfy the creative Mm -hmm. urge through that and I remember you were there for a while um, doing that personals thing. I can't remember how long, but at some point they sent you to Sweden. Yeah. They <laughs> Same job, right? Yeah. I mean, I run into these people sometimes. The woman that hired me um, was, uh, she was Native American and she considered herself to be a psychic and a, a seer and um and she was also she was just one of these people that was she would see things in people, you know, outside of being psychic, which is a thing that I'm not really in belief of. Um, but she took a chance on me and and took a gamble on me. And she was just a kind of person that put herself in places that maybe she didn't belong in. Um, and one of those places was she had somehow convinced Erickson Mobile that she was in possession of people that could <laughs> through the website and the telephony work at the psychic line that she was in possession of people that and this was the infancy of the internet too could live stream video among other things um and Ericsson Mobile based in Stockholm was very interested in the idea of live streaming video through an intranet they had for all of their facilities. So they would, they were interested in the idea that the Swedish office could, this was basically the beginning of tele, of video conferencing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but the Swedish office could log in to their intranet and the Texas facility could do the same and they would have a video conference. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sent over as sort of what you would call now the front end design of this website that would um, be the intranet. And then she had also kind of turned this relationship into 
they were kind of bankrolling her to build this website and I'm envisioning it in my mind right now. I remember, I do remember designing this thing and it just, if I could find those files, it would just be laughable <laughs> how, <laughs> how crazy this website looked that I was designing. It was a site for some entertainment thing that she wanted to do with with psychics and <laughs> and other things but so long story short Erickson Mobile was my employer and the woman that originally hired me at the psychic line um made that possible and I remember talking to cuz there were there were normal people in at this office and you know and and this woman is a normal person in some sense um but there were people there that weren't necessarily sold on this whole psychic. No, they were just people. Jobs. I was friends with these two guys that would do what they called the prompts. And the prompts are press one mm-hmm. for, you know, and their whole job was they would hire the prompt talent, the guy to come in and go press two for. And so their whole job was cutting that up in the software and, and delivering it into the telephony system. And they became my like lunch guys. Like we would go to lunch together and hang out. And they like one of them was in a band, and he was originally from uh, Canada. And so I, you know, I asked these guys. I was like, "Look, this is some crazy shit. Like, they're I'm going to get flown apparently to Sweden and live there." And they were like, "You know, I mean, it's gonna, it's gonna bottom out, <laughs> but, but just set set it up in a way that you can get out." You know, when it goes bad. <laughs> when it goes bad. And, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't traveled really at that point. I hadn't been, I'd never been, I don't, I don't, had, I'd not been out of the country. I had to get a passport and, and it worked out. I got, I had a incredible apartment in Sweden. Um, and that should have been for an entire family and would have been for an entire family there that I was living in. And I was and basically. Is this like a, uh, is this in a, a picturesque, nice part of Stockholm? Is that where you were? Yeah, it's it really. It's is a, a neighborhood called, uh, I think, Odenplan, and I was living on Carl's Carlsbergwagen, <laughs> um, and yeah, beautiful part of town. And but I was basically I was picked up from the airport in Stockholm by this woman, and the psychic on, or someone else by the psychic, mm-hmm. and you know on a Saturday and dropped off at this apartment, given a key and told to be at the offices on Monday. And that was that literally that drive from the airport to my apartment was my introduction. <laughs> and I, so I was in this city that I had really no business being in. I knew nothing about it and I would just wander by myself. And I went, they have a, they had seven elevens there and you know, I went looking for beer and I got, like a six pack of bud in, in a seven 11 in Stockholm. And I took it back to the apartment and in like 20 minutes I had finished it. And I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> like what is going on? I just like killed a six pack and it took me weeks to figure out what was going on. You can't buy, um, it was like three, two beer. It, it was like, it was basically like non-alcoholic yeah. almost. And you can't actually buy, that in the regular stores, you have to go and wait in this queue mm-hmm. at the liquor store, which would the line would be down the block because the Swedes love to drink, but they mm-hmm. also love to bureaucratize themselves. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just an, an 
one of a thousand things I had no idea about. Um, but yeah, it did. It took me, the psychics took me to Sweden and I was there for three months, three and a half months. I remember you saying that you didn't find it very easy, uh, socially there because you were a Schwarzkopf. Like you weren't, you weren't a blonde Swede that you were uh, ethnically sort of in a different category to them because you had dark hair and you didn't look, uh, didn't look Swedish. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I, I think probably in the past I blamed that more on, on that than I would now. You know, I think it's hard just to move anywhere basically at this point, you Mm -hmm. know, it's hard. I'm even, I just moved back to Richmond filled with people that I know and it's still even hard to make or pick up relationships is hard but and you're no you sports cult here yeah i mean yeah in sweden it was i i definitely was not swedish and you could they could see that and they th- they actually kind of from what i could tell they thought i was turkish mm. and because <laughs> of the camel cigarettes maybe um <laughs> I but see bec- that. you know be- mm-hmm. and the thing the, that was their big that was their big uh, minority there. In the 70s, they had had an economic sort of resurgence. They hadn't been doing that well mm-hmm. prior to the 70s. In the 70s, they had this big um, you know, economic boom, and they shipped in all these Turks to build the buildings. They wanted mm-hmm. new, sh- new stuff and almost immediately realized that they did not like Turkish people <laughs> and, and definitely didn't want them living here or getting any of the social protections. And, and then there are these huge riots. The Turks aren't necessarily known for their compliance with people not being nice to them. And just, there are these huge riots and they had just, so the, the Swedes decided we're just, okay, we're just going to box you guys up. We're going to put you in these, apartment buildings that you have to build and we're going to paint them these neon colors so that everybody will know this is where the Turkish people live because literally you're not allowed to paint a building any other color color but these 12 colors that they have in Stockholm except where the Turks live they painted these like garish (laughs) things and it was basically like Turks here Turks over there don't (laughs) don't come in here and so here I was sort of like this potentially a Turkish person walking mm-hmm. around and I wasn't and and the Swedes aren't really known for being you know they're it's one of those things where you have to be introduced mm-hmm. if if someone said this is my colleague John he works with me at Ericsson and he would like to join us for a beer they would then you know you're then you're in it then they're right. you know but you know without it there is not a social outlet for for that, and so I kind of fell in with a group of you know of expats that from both from England and from America that were like, oh my god, I'm gonna, I'm so depressed here, <laughs> so lonely, and you know I had actually been kind of depressed and lonely in Seattle just from you know what I later learned was from the rain and uh-huh. and lack, the, of the lack of light. And this is about the same kind of climate except not rainy, right? It's and like uh, also the sun yeah. isn't rising. Yeah. At that point. And so, like, I went from, at the time, what was the suicide capital of America to what at also at the time was the suicide capital of the world. Suicide and alcoholism capital? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so. Go hand in hand. And then I moved to New York City right after that. So you went to New York right after that, really? Oh, that was the first time you went to New like, York, right? I had when boxed. Did you, when did you end up in Seattle working for this stranger? Uh, I went back to Seattle, ah, okay. which is, uh, I had entered into a, 
a sort of ridiculous long distance relationship via letters and stuff and went back to see if that if what was in the letters was in mm. in the reality and it wasn't um and so when i was back there that's when i went to the stranger i don't want to skip over too much of this first trip through new york and that was like the early 90s mm-hmm. mid 90s he came through there and like lived with my sister i think yeah me me and chris milk and and lucy lived where she still lives in on avenue d Lower East side mm-hmm. six floor walk up mm-hmm. yeah which you once famously said these stairs are either going to make me a better man or kill me <laughs> i always like that <laughs> yeah i'm not sure they did either so and nothing happened you got no traction and um in new york at that point well the well the weird thing was that i had i had arguably developed a set of skills to be an okay psychic line ad <laughs> I had started to f- to do posters. Very early desktop publishing kind of stuff. And, and yeah, I had design. started to do some posters in mm-hmm. Seattle, and I had started to do designs that were a little bit above my pay grade at the psychic place. And I think that showed, and I took that portfolio to New York and didn't really get very far, but I also took it back to Seattle and and basically talked my way into a job in 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 their ad department and and I, I should say the stranger is probably still it was then and, and is still the best weekly paper in the country if not the whole world um, just from their writing quality is excellent Dan Savage is not only the columnist but he's now their editor-in-chief oh really so that's where he was local to that he got syndicated out of Seattle yeah he worked Savage he, Love. he worked out of the office at in 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 Seattle and I I, I knew him there and uh, you know I was working upstairs the art department was in this loft up there and uh, you know so it was a huge deal to get hired there and again, it was another one of those savior moments. I thought it was going to be, you know, I was also, the relationship I had moved out for, out there for was rapidly falling apart. And um, I really wanted this job. And I had, I had actually, all the money I made in Stockholm, I had blown in New York living with Lucy and Chris. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I really kind of needed this gig. And then when I got it, they said it's going to be $8 an hour. And I... It's just it was it, it's one of those places and they still exist from twenty dollars an hour to build stupid psychic hotline ads in the back of the personals to eight dollars an hour for this is more significant design right more visible stuff like yeah I mean it's one of those places that you I thought that by working at the stranger I was going to get my ticket to ride mm-hmm. you know which in some ways was true i did actually get a ticket i just didn't know where it was right (laughs) i didn't know it would take me back to richmond where i would spend the next three years working all hours on a on a paper on punchline on punchline um but how long were you in seattle the second gig i was only there for maybe five or six months you're there for six months and then you what made you come back to richmond it just i mean the velvet coffin the 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 gravitational pull the curse well, I mean, the relationship had severed. Um, I was back sleeping on couches. At least this time I was employed, but I was making $8 an hour. Mm-hmm. 
And and I had done Seattle. I had spent three years there before. So I was kind of like, this place is going to make me crazy again and depressed. Mm-hmm. And the stranger... And this is post, like, grunge explosion. Like, you were there sort of during, like, the, the after aftermath of that like you knew the sunny real estate guys yeah the very first when i first moved there in 95 it was very much like getting to a party that had you know kind of like showing up at someone's apartment right right the next morning Mm -hmm. and some people are still drinking but but most people is kind of gone most people are just kind of angry about whatever transpired (laughs) and what had happened to seattle really screwed those guys up i mean seattle was very much like richmond um even more so maybe more the scene was probably tighter than the richmond scene and it was like the media and industry showed up labels going in there and just shaking the tree people People had gotten a lot of money very fast and and had cameras shoved in their faces. A lot of people moved there to try to get in on that and I was not I was part of obviously the the last wave of that and i didn 't obviously get there for the same reason <laughs> but um but yeah, people were just they were very wary of outsiders um, people had people had died um, Kurt had just recently killed himself among other things and and it was just like it was kind of like people were freaked out yeah. and just tired and and all of that and that was the first time through yeah and the second time you came through there was like 97 or yeah so. it would have been right around 97. 97 and you came back and so the relationship fell apart your things weren't that great and what what were you offered in richmond did you have a somebody you were connecting with you're just like i'm gonna go home and no it's just like i cannot i can't go through this again i can't keep sleeping on the stranger the savior is not my savior even though i was learning a lot there um i can't live on this and if i can't live on this i can't repeat this cycle again i have to and at least in richmond i can you know stay with my dad for a hot second while i figure out what i'm doing and and so that's what i did and then within the first week of being back i ran into pete who i had pete humes who i'd worked with at bottoms up and had in in the kitchen and pete and i used to spend the night shift in the kitchen doing these like comedy routines to each other just create we would create characters and we would do those characters almost all night just to get kind of through being in a 120 degree kitchen until four in the morning Mm -hmm. and you know we would crack up the whole back of the house you know just like i had a i had a guy that i would do and uh pete had a guy that he would do and we had a couple different ones and so we had a lot of fun together and so i ran in i found out that he was doing a paper and i had just been doing marginally doing one of the best papers in the world mm-hmm. you know but i had a very I certainly uh, saw how it was done how it was laid out like what went i into participated it in in the mechanics of it yeah I, and not only that but i i was able to from being by, behind the scenes and i was designing ads for them one of the things that these papers did and and maybe if some of them still exist may still do is if you're just opening a bar which is another thing i'm finding out um if you're just opening a bar, you are not interested in paying an ad agency. (laughs) (laughs) 
much less a graphic designer mm-hmm. um, to do anything. Starting any kind of business. Yeah, any kind of business. And the stranger really wanted bars and really wanted nightclubs and really wanted small business um, involved in the paper. And had they had an incredible sales staff and just really disciplined, really understood the marketplace. And, and so I was designing those ads for those people. Um, and so what I got to see was a lot of how you paid for page count. Page mm-hmm. count at The Stranger was determined by mm-hmm. ad sales. Mm-hmm. And so you often found yourself kind of shuffling. You know, you can only go up four pages at a time because it's left, right, front, back. Mm-hmm. So every time you add a physical page, it's actually four. Mm-hmm. So every you know, so you would go up or down in four-page increments based on ad sales and... Um, you would be physically laying that paper out and recognizing like, oh my God, we just, we have to gain one more page, which means we were gaining four more pages and we only have one page worth of content. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to fill. Content like columns and calendar listings yes. and anything that's the entertainment. Yes. The reason people are looking at the paper and in order to catch the ads. Right? Yeah. And this is the thing. And, and then you had to fill that space. At all costs. You could not obviously have a blank page. And so like, and this became the thing at Punchline. This is one of those things that you, I think Pete said in his, in his interview with you, you know, it's that the 10,000 hours thing. Yeah. Like we became experts at filling pages and filling pages is just another way of saying at creating content and mm-hmm. creating something when there was nothing, there was mm-hmm. just out of sheer fear mm-hmm. that what would happen if we published this thing with a blank page right there. It's ridiculous. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we even at punchline went so far as to at least once have a color me in. <laughs> Why don't you color this in? It's just a drawing that Pete's done literally four seconds ago and it went to press, you know? So, <laughs> So many times that I came in there and, you know, I got to flit in and out of there and, like, you know, talk shit and grab some promos to review and flirt with the girls and then maybe deliver the paper or whatever. Um, But I would see you guys all just sitting there staring at these computer monitors with your hands on a mouse. And I'm like, you know, what were you doing? Was that all building ads? Was that all, like, like we, you know, strategizing how to fill up the page? I mean, it was all of the above, I guess. It's just... Um, I don't know. I mean, everybody worked differently. Jay on... Why was it an overnight thing so much of the time? Like, oh, I'm getting to that okay. right now. <laughs> Jay on worked diligently. Um, Jay on didn't... Jay on Falsini. That's right. And associate editor at one time. And Yeah, I mean, he, he muscled his way in there by sheer mm-hmm. um, force of personality and, and dedication and, and work ethic. You know, he really just... And there was a, a source of huge arguments there, um, you know, between myself and Jayon and then between um, Pete also. Just Jayon, rightfully so, wasn't getting the respect in the form of getting paid and partially because we just couldn't financially figure out mm-hmm. at all times how to pay everybody that was valuable. And he was very valuable. And he created he created our calendar section out of sheer... Um, like just hard work. Phone calls, like because most all that information. Most places and style 
was one of those places. Most places, if you don't fax it in by X or Y time, you're not getting in the paper. Mm-hmm. But Jayon was, no, it, it, these people are, are incompetent. These people are busy. These people are whatever they are. Mm-hmm. I need to get the listing for the pyramid or whatever it is. I need mm-hmm. to get it. And he would jump in his car and he would, or get on his bike and go get it. And mm-hmm. so he rightfully deserved a lot of what he used to fight for. But he would work all the time. Mm-hmm. And and what I would do probably, and I still kind of do this in some ways, but I've figured out how to make it work in a professional environment. Um, the overnight would beat me up so badly that I would, it would typically take me a couple days just like literally to recover from it um, physically. Like I learned what sleep deprivation does to you physically mm-hmm. there because I, I did not sleep... I did not sleep basically every Wednesday night until right. Thursday night for, had to go there. for three years. Yeah. yeah. And so there, I don't, there were only a few times when Pete and I really got out of there without, you know, at two, maybe at two in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes we would, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. We would catch a uh, last call somewhere. And know that we would need to wake up maybe at five, finish something, drive, physically drive the paper in its flattened out format that would then be photo, like put into a printing press, physically drive it to Petersburg. But what almost always happened was that when the sun would rise um, somewhere around seven or eight or nine or ten sometimes, we would get in Pete's car or my car and drive the paper to Petersburg. Um, But the paper would show up at the paper would show up at eight o'clock at night in their van. They would send a guy to get the flats Mm -hmm. every time, every single time for three years. We would tell that guy, (laughs) sorry, it's not ready. ready. I may, maybe one or one or two times, but so I would take a couple days to recover just physically, and then I would kind of fuck around. And the paper would come out two days later, right? Like it came out on Thursday? Is that right? Or it would go right? in, yeah, it would come the next, it, there would be a day, and then it would it would get delivered to, um, was it Allison Street? The first one was, you know, on Cary. Yeah, it was but. Up there, and then, yeah, Allison after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so for so us. Everybody would have to be there to take the papers off the truck when the guy brought them and we would all either load them in a car or put them in the hallway there and then deliver them. Yeah. (laughs) As the art director, I didn't have to be a part of that. Um, but I did, I did often participate in that, you know, driving around with Pete or Jay on and, there's a point of pride with Jay on that. He would always want me to, he was like, why don't you come out? Why don't you come out and deliver with me? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you too proud? Are you too proud to deliver? Are you Mr. <laughs> Big Art Director? I still have to deliver. And, you know, so this, again, a huge point. Right. We would get major arguments about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, so that was, um, I don't know, that was my ramble about so you did how people work. For four years? I did it for just under three. And you, Punchline was around for six Years? Well, they kept on after me. Yeah, um, you left and George took over. Yeah, doing what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Well, Pete did it for a while. Um, I think Pete 
downplays his... We all developed pretty serious quirk skills there, d- graphic design skills, and Pete and I... Um, graphic design and desktop publishing, right? These are different things, would you nah, say? I wouldn't say they're... I mean, like you're laying out a paper to be published on a desktop. That's the way I understand desktop. But yeah, but I mean, it is, but it is graphic design. Yeah. It is... But you were also good at banging out this sh- crap of putting like calendars, you know, in these columns and you know setting up the page, all this filler, you know. Yeah, but when you do that with a sense of aesthetic and style, and, and part of that is the reason why it took us so long, you know. Like, I spent months figuring out the typeface I wanted to use. And the only way I could do that, because when ink hits newsprint, the newsprint sucks it up. Mm-hmm. And so you can look at it and print it out from a laser printer, but it's nothing compared to what happens when it hits that, that pulp. Right. And so I would experiment in hidden away in the paper. I would experiment with different typefaces and different type sizes and, to try to get the maximum legibility at the minimum point size and so and style and so like a part of that was a dedication to the idea that I can I, anybody can make a paper but it's going to look like crap it's going to mm-hmm. be comic sans it's going to be all of this it's not you're you're going to have four and which is often the case you'll have four different fonts in one article Mm -hmm. you know just in the body copy and it's just sort of people that just have no interest or 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 clue about what they're doing and so and they think it doesn't matter but it really does for readability like you know and you people never notice it but i still remember to this day that our typeface was garamond at 9.87 points and the horizontal width was reduced by 10%. That was our body font. Mm-hmm. And that took me months to figure out how to get that to where I wanted it to be. Wow. You know, the other stuff I could rip off from the stranger, mm-hmm. <laughs> things like that. But, you know, and then, and then as, as you get better, you stop ripping people off. You start mm-hmm. developing your own taste. You start mm-hmm. saying, well, I don't you know. It's stranger uses this one, but I'm getting sick of this mm-hmm. headline font. You know, and I think I can I want to strike out and go a different direction. And, you know, I think that that road, that mental process of of thinking of this stuff is the road to becoming an art director, mm-hmm. to becoming an but advertising point, person. What you're doing and I think what you gave up when you left Punchline, but you were I, I imagine because it was for me this sort of a thing is like there was a lot more to doing Punchline. It, I mean, you were very dedicated to making it look good. And and uh, and you know and this was a calling card again, like of your design skills and your ability, and this has represented you. But you also really cared about providing this thing for Richmond, right? For culturally, did you care about that? Yes, I mean, <laughs> you're you're more practical than that, I guess. I mean, as we no, it's not it's not that. I mean, I'm I have been very motivated motivated throughout my career of wanting to prove to people that I'm good at stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a part of me, a thing that people encounter, and I, I'll say they'll encounter it in Richmond, but I'm sure they encounter it everywhere, is that, you know, 
people say a lot of things like that's that's really great for Richmond. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This paper is so good for Richmond, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, or that band is really good for Richmond. Right. And I came back from The Stranger and from Seattle thinking to myself, I'm not interested in being... Let's take out the for Richmond. Yeah, I mean, let's right. try to be better than The Stranger. Mm-hmm. Why don't we aim for that? Right. And then and forget this Stop other thing. Stop acting like we're in the Bush Leagues and say we're... You know. And we, you know, Pete and Jayon and I and... and the, the, those three people aren't even... You know, Leslie Housen was an incredible... Um, addition to that team and just just super talented super hard work ethic you know we actually sort of sat down and said here are some of the rules that we're always going to think bigger than richmond we're always going to try to be the best paper in the country mm-hmm. we're never going to mention our competition you know that was one of the big rules and we would again um in different instances get in huge fights editorial fights jay on and I don't even remember a lot of it. You know, Jayon may there may have been something where Style had said our name or something like that had happened, and then mm-hmm. Jayon would really want to put st- the word Style in an article, mm-hmm. and then I would, you know, and and we had decided as a group like we never talk about our competition. We never mm-hmm. say that we're in, in in any kind of competitive mode with Style mm-hmm. um, because we're above it. We're above that. We're not. We're they are not even what we consider to be our competition, even though obviously it it was our direct competition (laughs) and we were obsessed with what they were doing in some ways. But Mm -hmm. we also, you know, got, got out of that by when we, when we got good at it, you know, there was a period before, at least for me, before it kind of had a mini collapse and rebirth when George came on, um, there was a period where I thought we were really nailing it, mm-hmm. you know, where the covers were really good, where the calendar was just super tight and super just enthusiastic was mm-hmm. another thing. Like the calendar was almost like a separate magazine in mm-hmm. the magazine. Mm-hmm. And we would kick that off with a big image and, mm-hmm. you know, oh yeah, and, right. um, which I don't think was going on in the, in your competition until you did it. And then there was the splash for the calendar because I think you guys did start doing that before, but whatever, yeah, I mean, or, or we did. But uh, um, this being like putting this kind of quality out for not really that much f- f- monetary compensation, and then you know, and even losing money, and like getting loaned money and losing that money, and being in a lot of financial trouble, you finally said, okay. This is maybe as far as I can take doing it for these kinds of things, and it's time I took this skill and started making some making money and making a career out of it. I mean, you, money had been a concern all along, whether it's to pay people back or whatever. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I won't get into the the details of my departure. Finally, um, and I was, you know, to be honest, very much guilty of despite becoming financially a partner in the business, um, you know, in the same way that I told you, you know, it took me days to kind of get back up to speed. And even then I would kind of just screw around. Mm -hmm. I could have been a lot more active, you know, I, you know, Pete, Pete became responsible for the finances of that company. And I allowed that and allowed myself to be a little, sort of clueless of what was going on and in that in that privacy Pete you know made some bad decisions and mm-hmm. you know 
and and that became like a source of you know real conflict at at one point and you know like Pete says in in your interview we were i was exhausted mm-hmm. i was i what my relationships weren't working um you know i was not getting paid that much and we were just you know we were killing it we were like nailing this thing and getting really good but like we weren't moving forward and and selling we, the ads collecting the money for the ads well that's the thing know, managing the finances well that's the thing about the stranger that i mentioned they had their sales force was was run by this lesbian woman covered in tattoos who was just like i don't know where she is now but she was so good at strategically figuring out how to raise revenue and Mm -hmm. and she led a group of salespeople and motivated them and just really had plans they you know they, they had these and Pete, I used to talk about her all the time. I would say, and and Pete and I would talk about it all, like, just we need, why aren't we finding this person mm-hmm. that just has a hard-on for sales? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you say it, you realize it's just, sales isn't all that sexy often. Right. And so it really, honestly, it takes, it takes a very specific, I mean, Bay, uh, our friend Bay, mm-hmm could sell anything. Yes, he's one of the sand to the uh, Arabs, you know, snow to the Eskimos. He <laughs> is a, an incredibly talented salesperson, and part of that is that he believes what he's selling no matter what it is. Yeah, he, and he cannot help but be charismatic either. Yeah. People want to give him money. They want to just support him for being him. But that kind of talent, that kind of mm-hmm. talent doesn't end up at punchline. Right. You know, and so, and that was the big problem. Well, yeah, that, you could go make, I mean, if, if what people are in this for is money, and at some point everybody has to recognize that they got to be in it for that on some level, if they want to, you know, I mean, you hit on this at the very beginning is that somebody's got to pay for all of this stuff. Like, and even if, you're saying like it's not that big a deal to me. Somebody who money is a big deal to has the money and has, you know, put it into this thing. Whether it was Dwayne, you know, Nelson, or you know, people you know, people you were related to, Pete was connected to Liz, whatever. Somebody was having to pay for this, and and once again, you are responsible. Sort of maybe you weren't legally responsible to them, but you're responsible like you were back in the San Francisco point when you went up there. And at some point, there's got to be a greater attention to can, how do I do this stuff and not put somebody in a position, an investor or somebody like that, you know, myself. You know? I, I think that's true, but I think that the the greater, the the real answer is that there's there's so many, and, and I think that you'll probably find this with your podcast, is that there's, we struggled to become verified and verified is this crazy thing that people that are in the publishing industry know, but most other people don't know your verified, um, circulation. Mm -hmm. And there's a, I think there's basically one company that will, that is in the business of verifying your circulation. Mm -hmm. And we hovered in the 10,000 circulation, which means that Mm -hmm. there were, literally 10,000 issues of punchline published every week. And so there's circulation and there's readership. Mm -hmm. And so what we used, we used to say, because we couldn't afford 
to pay the company to certify our, our circulation or our readership, we would kind of make it up and we would say, yes, there's only 10,000 papers being printed. But if you left that paper on a cafe table, then mm. probably two or three people have read. And that's true. And or they true, were left in it, bathrooms and people read them more than, more than one person but the read them big, there. The yeah. big problem I'm getting to is that the people that buy the placement for Budweiser's print advertising will not pay any attention to you unless your circulation is verified above 30,000. Mm -hmm. The second you get verified above 30,000, Corona is going to be talking to you. They're going to want a full color, which we charge a lot extra for, a full color back page ad. Uh, Budweiser is going to be talking to you. The you know You're going to get... We were always just so close to this revenue source, and it's all about how many eyes are on this thing. You mm -hmm. know, like that's what advertisers care about. How many people can I am I going to expose my communication to, and what kind of people are they? And that was a great thing that we actually had at Punchline. We had the demographic. Mm -hmm. We had the right demographic. Um, for you know a lot of youth seeking companies but we could never get to that point and it was just like it was murder in mm. some sense of just you're so close to this huge mm. artery of like oil under the ground or something mm -hmm. like mm. that and yeah you're you're you you're you have investors you have these other things but um it, it was really that we could never break that it was like breaking the speed of sound mm -hmm. our 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 plane just kept not being able to get. And to maybe there. if there was, I mean, because look, come on. I, I mean, I, I I delivered that thing, and I saw the way that that paper was treated in places, and lo lots more than three people handled one issue, you know. And lots of people would see the, that back page on that thing. Like if people were waiting for a sandwich to be made, they'd pick that thing up and, and leaf through it and look at a whole bunch of but, stuff. And but the real money, and the real money is unfortunately the motivator and the, right. the change, that's the change agent. The real money, it's literally, you're wasting their time if you're asking them to advertise without having a verified circulation. Right, right. So uh, when you left there, um, you, you left behind that frustration and started, I mean, how you went directly into advertising, like got a job in advertising from there? Or? Um, All right. Well, I had been exposed through the paper and through just this work that I had started to do to what, to understand what advertising was at all. You know, I, I was running a paper, but then everything was pointing towards advertising that this was a vehicle for you to reach you know and, and these were things i just didn't know about you know mm -hmm. i want to reach guys that want to go to a strip club mm -hmm. you know this was one you know, paper moon really wanted to they did a lot of advertising with us yeah they did full page and color ads sometimes yeah they they were big money but there was a lot of editorial discussion about you know, we were the alternative paper, but we didn't want to be the smut paper. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, and we actually... the strip club. Yeah, and the, we actually kind of offended them in this process. Mm -hmm. They had ads they wanted to do, and we kind of said, 
we we're deciding suddenly that we have standards that your ads aren't living up to, mm-hmm. and we kind of piss them off, and I can I can see why. Mm-hmm. Um, but we redesigned their ads to better fit, and we we were hoping well, you that were we possibly were possibly losing other revenue because there was some that kind of ad in there. I mean, there were people who were opposed to pe- being yeah. Pe- there were people that thought punchline was bad news. We had we we had profanity in in our writing. We we did allow profane words and we had questionable we even yeah we had we even published you know naked photographs Mm -hmm. at varying Mm -hmm. points we had chris milk naked on the cover in fact i remember writing anecdotes for the love issue for valentine's day that were bordering on uh, penthouse forum yeah i mean so there were people (laughs) there were people (laughs) in richmond that really thought our paper was smutty and and bad not of good class and all of that, and we were, we were cognizant of that in a way that we wanted to be the paper where you could do some of those things, but we also didn't want to scare away advertisers, and we didn't. Um, I don't know. So we got That's into the that thing that people really don't realize about a lot of censorship. It's not the fucking government telling you you can't do this or whatever. It's that if you want to be a viable economic thing, if you want to be a business, you can't be pissing off. A certain amount of people; otherwise, they're they're going to make it difficult for you to do business, and you're not going to be able to sell it. It's just like the verification process. That's why they have the standards and practices and the FCC and all yeah, this I, other stuff. And I think it's a huge, it's a little bit of obscenity, but it's also ad sales. Yeah, it's a super. That's a super big point, and I think that it leads into some other discussions, which I think are really interesting. Which is, I think that the people that have exploited that in the opposite mm-hmm. have done very well for like themselves. Like a Howard Stern kind of a person. Yeah, I think so. I think you can choose to say, I'm actually going to go against everything that people are telling me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a part of me that wonders, would that have been right for Punchline? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I think it probably wouldn't have been. But there's a part of me that even now, especially now at this stage in my career as a creative director in high and having been in high-end advertising is that I spend a lot of time trying to get people to take what they consider to be a risk to do something that's going to make a difference for them and that the difference I'm talking about is a financial difference. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I shot a piece um, within the last couple years with Cheech and Chong, Mm -hmm. and that was completely bankrupt i mean bankrolled by general mills a Mm -hmm. huge company um for one of their brands which is the fiber one Mm -hmm. brand of high fiber products and it was kind of a big deal to convince them to do something with their wholesome midwestern brand yeah they (laughs) are you know I, i spent many years traveling to minneapolis to present ideas like this one Mm -hmm. and (laughs) <laughs> and you, ex- you know, as an ad guy, you do expect to always have, you want to, in a sense, you want to push your clients, um, and, and get them out of their comfort zone a little bit. And I think that that's a definitely a stage that I'm at is that I've become, I've become really good at knowing interesting creative ways in. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that we use in a term we use in advertising is disruptive, mm-hmm. um, that we need to break through this clutter and mm-hmm. really inject this message into someone and it's becoming obviously way 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 harder to do that Mm -hmm. as there's all these different competing medias so 
it's the idea of doing something that's breakthrough and, and risky and loud um, is much more exciting for me lately, except I always couch it in that, you know, the only reason I'm getting paid, I, like literally the way that I make money now as an ad person is by making money for someone else like mm -hmm. that that's literally the job description mm -hmm. i feel mm -hmm. like i have is that it's you sales <laughs> you are talking yeah. to me because you would like more money mm -hmm. and, and you're a salesman on a meta level instead of on the uh, smaller level of you know person to person you're trying to affect the, the big sea change in the sales and you are thinking of like what's going to generate the excitement and what's going to generate like that woman who was such a great ad salesperson, you know, that's on one level of being having strategy and having awareness and demographic and all of that kind of stuff that, you know, and knowing how to put that in an executable strategy um, that would affect that. I mean, you learned from that as much as anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I, and I love I'm really inspired by, you know, movies like beautiful losers with you know where you see these people that i i really identify with who came from counterculture and came from being interested in in punk and alternative and graffiti diy stuff and then without selling out so much as that they said that this is just as viable of a way to speak to people as the way you are speaking to people you know, I think Steve Jobs is one of those people that recognize that, you know, the way there are many different ways to deliver messages that are breakthrough and relevant. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things he used to say is that we're not Apple, which is a company. It's just a company selling shit. Mm -hmm. Apple is not going to win against Microsoft. You know, this is punchline and style right here. Microsoft is just across the way from Apple and they're not going to win by selling megahertz and buttons. You know, mm -hmm. my buttons are better than their buttons mm -hmm. or my megahertz are bigger than their megahertz. Mm -hmm. He took that battlefield. Machines and he took it. And all that. Mm -hmm. He took it. He decided where he wanted to fight Microsoft. I don't want to fight it down in the trenches like World War One. I'm going to mm -hmm. take it up into the sky, mm -hmm. and I'm going to say that if you like Apple, you're a dreamer mm -hmm. and you're this thing. You're you you are someone that wants to change things. You're a rebel, mm -hmm. and he sold computers through that, and and he created twice created you know the top technology computer company mm -hmm. in the world mm -hmm. by doing that, and I can. I can literally be talking to a small company in Richmond, Virginia, and say the exact same thing to them, that by thinking differently, which is the Apple tagline, right. we can make your company... Except they say think different. But anyway... Think different, yes. <laughs> I don't know why there's no... I'm using it in a sentence, Curtis. Yes, you're correct. That's correct <laughs> English, actually. I never did understand think different, but anyway. Oh, I get it. Okay, go ahead. You know, let's take... Let's, let's flip through any one of these... I'm going to censor myself, magazines mm -hmm. that I have in my house, uh, regional magazines, mm -hmm. Virginia Living and, uh, you know, Richmond Magazine. And let's look, for example, at a dentist ad or a mm -hmm. lawyer ad where they get a portrait photographer to take a picture of them all grouped together and then they say, we're this law firm. And, mm -hmm. you know, I would venture to say I could make that law firm a lot more money Right. <laughs> By saying, 
I think that this stuff matters. That you were saying this about publishing before, but uh, a print paper is that you put a lot of time and effort into the font that's going to look the best on newsprint and pulp, and you hit it in different places just so you could see it when it got printed, what it was going to look like before you committed to it. But where the real money spots. is, so you know, these details matter. That it's like the hum of. You get used to a brand, you're not even paying attention to it anymore. So they have to up their their awareness in your eyes sometimes by doing something edgy, right? And and to be noticed, sometimes, if you're sometimes not going to pay attention to a dentist ad that looks like all the other dentist ads. Exactly, and, and, and you know, and let's say it's a bankruptcy law firm. Mm-hmm. You know, let's start thinking about who we're talking to. Mm-hmm. What's going on with this person? Is mm-hmm. it a guy? Is it a is it a woman? How old are they? Mm-hmm. Where where are we finding them at this point in their day, mm-hmm. in their life? Shit's fucked up for them because they're going right. bankrupt. They mm-hmm. just don't know it yet. And so how do I get – how do I s- put this bullet in their brain that says, you need to call me immediately mm-hmm. to solve your problems because you're going to go well, bankrupt. Is, is compassion involved in that? I mean, or do you care well, about helping them? You know, do, is that required? I mean, it, I think the reason the, that I'm successful at what I do is because I do start to care. This is what you call the brief mm-hmm. in advertising. Um, I get briefed about who who am I trying to reach and where are they, and then I, we try to create this message. So the 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 end well, hold of on, this I want to s- w- stop here for a second because I wanted to ask you this question a little while ago because to sum it up, I mean, I know that you, um, and I don't know the details of it, but I know that you have asc- you know, ascended through, you've gone through many ad agencies, a-, a number of ad agencies here that you've had experience with, and then you went back to New York and you got into advertising there and, and things just kept progressing and you kept getting more and more responsibility and taking and having more and more say and being more of a leader and being more in charge going from being basically uh, um, somebody who laid things out to being a graphic designer to having the being in charge of the whole picture the meta thing of like the strategy and the selling anywhere in there as a counterculture person do you believe that selling out exists and what you know what would define selling out versus like really wanting to become more effective and and communicating a larger scale and actually helping people you know where where does selling out if does if it exists how would you define it and would you say that you have done it on any level i don't know i mean i guess i don't i don't know if i want to use sell out as a as a term there's something that but we, we, you have to recognize that's something that people think of. So I know. I mean, you don't want to use it, but address the idea of it. You know, I think I'm an ad guy. I work in an office, not right now, but I normally work in an office. I make advertisements. I work on creative strategy for companies. That's pretty sellout sounding, right? <laughs> but what's the difference? The, you know, what, what is I, the line? If I, if I phoned it in. That's kind of, I feel like that's where I would be selling out. If mm-hmm. I never, I, I mean, when I, when my part, my writing partner and I presented the concept we called Magic Brownies, mm-hmm. which involved needing to get Cheech and Sean to agree to be in a short film that we were making. So if I phoned it in, I think that's, that would be. You know, you'll probably have to edit. That would this be part. selling out. You'll have to edit this part, probably. I'll my edit what I feel like editing. <laughs> Alrighty. 
Look, my, I, my I'm writing, not trying to back you into a corner no, no, about no, this. Cause, I, I, no, I think it's a good question. I yeah. think you know my writing partner and I had that idea, and we had to we had to go fight for it, um, and we had to convince a lot of people that it was going to be successful for them, and it would make a difference for them, and that it was a good idea. And we and we arguably wrote the piece that we ended up shooting well, and we involved these counterculture people. Um, and so, you know, I think anybody that is, but I don't, I don't want to damn anybody. I, you know, there's, there's definitely times in my life. One of them might be now where I envy someone that has quote unquote sold out, has Mm -hmm. knows that they're doing something that is not the thing that they are passionate about, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's solving something for them. It, maybe it's creating a consistency that allows them to have a really, beautiful home life mm-hmm. and that, and i think as a person gets older those are things that i think about you know i i left richmond in in the very last time to go to new york to challenge myself and to to to, to try to make it to this larger level mm-hmm. and those are things i'm not motivated by anymore you mm-hmm. know now that i'm back i'm more motivated uh, motivated to have a beautiful life and to however I can create that I think is, is great. And if I sell out quote unquote to do it, I'm okay with that. But I do really enjoy, um, working really hard to try to get at the message. And I think the other thing that I, it is meta an appropriate word to use about this because it's, it's a big message yet a subtle message. And yet it produces a, a dis- demonstrable effect, yet it's if it's done right, you really don't, on some level, notice it consciously. You know, it's it's a very, like, and it's kind of like, I mean, there is a consistency to it, uh, going all the way back to you drawing women with guns and a desire to create a thing that people notice, that people are aware of, and all of that. And you're doing that now on this scale and at this level and doing it for some of the more, like, legitimate people with the deep pockets who do have a need of this kind of thing. And so there is a consistent thing in there. But do you think that when you get hung up on, and if this ever happens, that you get hung up on the payday that you can get from a General Mills or somebody like that, some huge client like that, that you can like lose sight of that thing that makes you so good at figuring out that thing, you know, that figuring that, that, that graphic designer in you, you know, that gives you the edge or the, artist the guy who drew stuff that gives you the edge the counterculture thing that you could lose sight of that and would that be selling out that you you know you just are focusing on the big fish and hooking the big fish and and you know the mechanics of that yeah i mean i i I guess that if anybody that has ever worked with me in the last nine years is listening to this they would know that i'm i'm constantly fighting for people to do to do better to reach further and um you run into the, at the very high levels you can run into this thing which is it's very you know and it, I don't even watch um Mad Men mm-hmm. but there might be people listening that are exposed to advertising through this idea mm-hmm. I watch Mad, it so you right. can talk to me <laughs> but the way that the industry is now is again it's I came into advertising at at after the party it mm-hmm. ended mm-hmm. the party the that creative revolution that they talk about in there? i well i mean there was a lot of you know the 
there were the budgets were big, the shoots were long, people were staying at hotels. There was a lot of partying and a lot of just excess, which sounds like a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I didn't start in this business at a point when that was occurring. It had ended. It had mm-hmm. they ruined it for me, and so mm-hmm. now me and my partners couldn't get at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is um, there's a real m- sort of mediocreizing of how you deliver messages to people mm-hmm. that I fight against constantly. And I guess selling out for me would be if I just stopped doing that because it would make my life easier. And it's a real consideration for me. And, you know, there, I, you know, after some big fight where I'm really trying to convince someone maybe internally to back my idea up and push it through to this client and really challenge the client to get to the place that I think they need to be. Um, after one of those fights, I'll go back to my office and say like, you know, why am, why am I not just this guy that can just get, just get over it, do the thing that they want you to do. And just, you'll go home earlier. You really you just, those guys always go home earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, they also get laid off faster, mm-hmm. I think. So I think that's one of those things where I'm just, you know, I, I really, I really appreciate anyone that fights to do something that they want to reach just a little bit further. And I also really, at this point, I really just appreciate people that want to make stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm really, I'm really psyched about this this podcast of yours because you're mm-hmm. making things and you're mm-hmm. just waiting in and you're doing it. And I think that that becomes a real barrier for people. And mm-hmm. I taught briefly at VCU and, you know, I would, people would ask me, you know, what are you, what can I do to get into this? And I just well, make it mm-hmm. start making stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, I really do think it's the people that are making it, whether or not anyone's paying them are the ones that are really, are really interesting mm-hmm. and are really out there doing, um, doing the breakthrough stuff and pushing everybody else. So, yeah, one of my favorite um short stories of all time is uh called Sonny's Blues and it's a, about jazz musicians in Harlem. And one of them is playing his at the end of the book one of his one of them is playing his first concert after recovering from heroin addiction and he had had this ease and comfort of playing music when addicted that he was having trouble finding in this concert. You know, it's like his first time out there playing like that. And you talk about the communication between the uh, musicians on the stage and how the bass player and the sax player are trying to encourage him, who are the piano player, to strike out for deep water. That striking out for deep water isn't the same thing as drowning, you know? Yeah. And I, I always love that. And I think we're, um, we're afraid. A lot of people are afraid to, um, to just strike out, to, you know, to risk it, to just to risk the thing that they, somebody might tell them it sucks or, they're no good. And, and the thing that I've noticed with you all along is that you will obsess over the qu- this quality thing, you know. And, like, I've never known anybody to turn something over and turn something over, you know, whether it was a drawing of a, a woman in a gun when we were sitting in a coffee shop when you were, like, 19 or 17, you know, just turning this sketchbook around and around and around and looking at it from all these different angles to what you've just told me about the typeset and the font for Punchline. And I think, you know, it's kind of a revelation to me to know that, I mean, you really, there's been a lot of risk taking, but you, there's some belief behind it, like of pushing and striking out for something more and doing better. And, um, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I, I think I'm super lucky <laughs> that what it's kind of inspiring to me. Oh, I mean, I think that I've been really lucky. Arguably, again, this is my the the word of the the interview for me. Um, to be so clueless mm-hmm. <laughs> about about life and what I was going to do, and to have tripped into this thing that has created a you know I'm I'm in a home that was built on stuff that pops out of my brain mm-hmm. you know like I I sell ideas that come out of my brain to people and it makes them money and it's it's really super it's weird sometimes especially when you know there's times where you're looking at your bank account and it's it's getting smaller and I th- I think to myself well something's going to pop out of my brain and mm-hmm. then I'll sell it to somebody mm-hmm. and then everything will be great and it actually that's kind of the way it works um, but let's not and I'm not here like trying to suck your dick over this or anything <laughs> like that but you know what, the story you've just told me highlights that you worked very hard the 10,000 hour thing to get to the point where the idea and the inception are so close together that you've developed the ease of execution from starting at the very bottom by asking somebody for privacy so that you could f- figure out how to use the rudimentary Photoshop, you know. And you, it's not like it's that easy that something just comes out of your head. You're, you're uh, you know, at the age you are, you're 40-something, you've spent 20 years doing this. Yeah. You know, a lot I mean, more than 10,000 hours, but actually. I, and But I think, mm-hmm. you know, what's in, and I loved the interview with, with Pete Humes, partially because, you know, I got to reminisce in his take take on, on that. But Punchline was this crazy thing. And it was, it sucked in a lot of ways. And it, it was kind of a vortex for me of just like you said, just sitting at this terminal you know, cranking this thing out. But it, to this day, when I'm, even when I'm hiring somebody, I look for somebody that has been tested by some experience in their career and has had to, really had to, to really own up and step up to the plate. And, you know, there is no safety net. There Mm -hmm. was never a safety net with punchline. We had to fill that page. Mm -hmm. We had to fill that page every day. And they were typically 85, you know, whatever the, the count was like 80, 84 pages or whatever. Um, that's a lot of pages. Mm -hmm. And, and we did it every day and we couldn't be scared of it. And we couldn't not, we couldn't just stop. You know, we couldn't miss a day. Mm-hmm. We couldn't miss an episode of Punchline. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, one of the things you start to notice is, <laughs> you know, you can notice now when Style goes on vacation, they have a photograph episode. Mm-hmm. Look at all these great uh-huh. yeah. that we <laughs> took like over they, the last 20 years. It's like, what are, they, they, they compl- what do they call those uh, those sitcom episodes that are all flashback, the flashback episode? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, you know, mm-hmm. and so what that means is that all of style is on vacation except for their graphic designer, mm-hmm. you know, who has to put these photographs together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. so Punchline might have had an issue or two of that, but I had to lay it out. Mm-hmm. And so I look for that because, you know, you in this industry you meet people that think that they can pop out of the brand center and have that money that they paid for that experience will somehow that has made them a creative that mm-hmm. has made them a creative thinker 
in the world of advertising or in general. And mm -hmm. there's all these ridiculous terms that people use, like I'm a creative ninja or I'm mm -hmm. this, you know, and it's just a bunch of crap because, you know, to be honest, the real gig, the real gig of this gig is I met a guy when I was at BBDO and they said, oh, that guy's the Snickers guy. And you, that guy makes like four, five hundred thousand dollars a year, and he's not even that high up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Holy fuck! Mm -hmm. How is that guy?" And all he does is Snickers. And mm -hmm. they said, "Well, the thing is that that guy wakes up every day and attacks Snickers creatively, and he's done it for six fucking years. <laughs> like he wakes up every day with a hard on for selling <laughs> Snickers to people." And he does it. And so when I look at some of these ad center kids, I say, like, I, mean, I love that you have, like, cool book pieces and stuff like that. But this is the gig, mm -hmm. is that you're not always going to get put on Snickers. You're lucky if you get on Snickers. Snickers is a great effing account to mm -hmm. get on because they are shooting for a a really, you know, bored target that wants funny stuff. Mm -hmm. You're going to get put on an account like FMC, which is a defense contracting holding uh, pesticide company that sprays fields. <laughs> and you're going to be marketing your stuff to not farmers. That might mm -hmm. actually be fun. You're marketing it to the guy that sells shit to farmers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's your gig, and you've got to attack it. And you've got so to sell. think about that all day long. You've got right. to sell Cheech and Chong into that. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, then I think that you know maybe you've got the chops for mm -hmm. this. But... Anyway, that's well, my speaking of praying, my high horse spraying. on everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know the? Do you know the line, John? I guess I did. What Say it? it. Don't spray it. No, I got. <laughs> I got at this time. We have. So, speaking of spraying, I got to piss bad as a motherfucker. <laughs> but you're supposed to say that. Now you say it. You can go and use my bathroom if you'd no. like. <laughs> <laughs> How hard is it to say I gotta piss bad in the motherfucker? Some people just don't get it. That was comical. Anyway, there at the end, wasn't it? That's what happens when I try to manufacture something. Like a catch brain. So, um, yeah... John Goldberg, my boy, shine uh, agency. Look him up. He can help me. And John Falcini tonight at midnight. So scared. And WRIR came up in oceans this weekend. Uh, also, lots of other. Exciting things are going on in the Richmond area that I have no idea about because I don't do research. This is not about that. But uh, I'll just remind you not to be a stick in the mud. Stop sitting around and crying and saying there ain't nothing to do. Eating chicken vindaloo. Go on the interwebs. Go on Facebook. Look around. I'm sure there's something for you out there you might find yourself sitting in a nice hot bar next to some nice hot girl or guy or whatever it is you like you might start talking some shit you might have a couple of drinks you might get out and start walking
walking. Next thing you know. Yeah. It's Friday. I'm feeling real full of myself and punchy. So I uh, hope I can translate that into punchy. Something myself this weekend. No, he did. Yeah, he did. Okay, until next time. Namaste, motherfuckers.